Thank you for being here tonight. We are thin in number tonight. I know we've got a lot of folks that are sick. Some are traveling, and so we pray for those who are sick, those who are unable to be here, as well as those who are traveling. We pray for their safety. If you have been traveling this week and you're back home, we're glad that you have made it to your appointed destination and hope and pray that our worship tonight together will be beneficial to you. I do hope that you had a great Thanksgiving. We have had uh, the opportunity to spend time with people that we love, and so to be able to give thanks for all the blessings that God bestows on us, we're grateful for that. And really, as Christians, every day ought to be a day of thanksgiving, because we have been so richly blessed. I was thinking as we were singing a moment ago, I have never been blessed with a good voice to sing. But I couldn't help but think about how beautiful our song service has been tonight, what it might be like in heaven one day, to be gathered around the throne to sing praise to God and all the people. When all of God's singers get home, what a great day that'll be. We welcome you tonight. If you're visiting, as always, we encourage you to come back. We have a number of people that visit us from week to week. We have many who are streaming live with us, and so we're grateful that you have been able to we're able that we have the opportunity to stream our services and make this service available to so many people. And I hear from people literally everywhere. It's amazing the number of people that we hear from, not just in this location, but really all over the world. And so we thank Kevin and all those who have made it possible for us to do this. I know David is working tonight. Thank you for all those who are making this possible. Tonight we look at Isaiah chapter 2. In Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah, some seven centuries before Jesus ever came to earth, spoke of the Lord's house, the church. The church exists tonight in accordance with God's eternal plan. There are many people in our world today who are misinformed when it comes to the church. They have the idea that the church was an afterthought on God's part. That is not the case. The church exists, according to Paul in Ephesians 3, 9 through 11, the church exists tonight according to the eternal purpose which God alone purposed before the foundation of the world. So when we look at the redemptive plan of God, it involved Jesus as the Redeemer, and then the establishment of the church. And so Isaiah is going to talk in a very candid way about this exalted mountain into which all nations would flow. Bear in mind, Isaiah wrote over in chapter 9, verse 6, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then listen to this, And the government shall be upon his shoulders. We're talking about the monarchy of King Jesus. Jesus Christ is, as Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has a kingdom. That kingdom is not a carnal, material institution. But rather, it is a spiritual entity, a spiritual institution. Isaiah, looking down in the distant time, saw the day in which God would establish the church. It would be viewed as an exalted mountain. There are three divine institutions ordained by God, the first being the home, the second being the civil government, 
the third, the church. And so tonight, as we look at Isaiah chapter 2, there are at least five things I believe Isaiah saw pertaining to the church that he wrote about seven centuries before Jesus came to earth and established the church. Number one, Isaiah saw the period in which the church would be established. Now listen to what Isaiah said. It shall come to pass in the last days. Some translations may say it'll come to pass in the latter days. The latter days or the last days is a reference to the last dispensation of time. There are three periods of time spoken of in Scripture, beginning with the period of the patriarchs. The patriarchal period was followed by the Mosaic dispensation. The Mosaic dispensation pointed to the coming of the Christ. We're reading about Isaiah right now and what Isaiah saw concerning the church. The Mosaic dispensation, however, would give way to the Christian dispensation. You remember Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 said, But know this, in latter times, perilous times, or in the last days, perilous times will come. The reference here, again, the last dispensation of time. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 1 that God speaks to us today in the latter days by His Son. That is His divine spokesman. So as we pick up in Isaiah chapter 2, listen to what Isaiah said. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days, again, the last dispensation of time. You remember Amos in the long ago foretold of that latter time in which God's Spirit would be poured out on the people. Peter quotes that in Acts chapter 2. Now, note if you would, secondly, first he identifies the period. Now, let me just inject this very quickly. In Daniel chapter 2, when Daniel stood before King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, as you well know, had a dream. He saw, he saw a golden image. Daniel interpreted that dream. And Daniel foresaw four world empires that would rise and fall in successive order, beginning with Babylon. And he said that Babylon would ultimately give way to the Medes and the Persians. The Medo-Persian Empire would then yield to the Grecian Empire that would then fall to the Roman Empire. So in verse 44, Daniel said, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all those kingdoms. And then he said, it shall stand forever. So we talk about this period of time. Well, Daniel said, God's going to establish a kingdom, an eternal kingdom. He would do that in what period of time? In the days of the Roman kings. So we're talking about the last dispensation of time in which God would establish the church, the kingdom of God. This would occur in the days of the Roman Empire. But then secondly... The place. Where would all of this originate? Well, let's look at what Isaiah had to say. First, Isaiah foresees the period in which the church will be established. Then secondly, he identifies for us the place 
where the church will be established. Know what he says. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. It shall be exalted above the hills. All nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. Now note this. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So there we have Isaiah pinpointing the place where the church would begin. Well, let me ask this question. Did what Isaiah foretell regarding the place, the originating place of the church, did that come to pass? You remember in Luke chapter 24, Jesus, of course, has been put to death on Calvary, raised from the dead. He's about to ascend to heaven, setting forth the Great Commission. He said that repentance, remission of sins would be preached in His name to all nations. And then here's what He said, beginning at Jerusalem. In verse 49, Jesus then instructs the apostles with these words. He said, I want you to tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued from power on high. Why would he say that? Well, turn now to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us that Jesus presented himself alive over the space of 40 days with many infallible proofs. People had the opportunity to see the resurrected Christ, didn't they? And you remember, in that context, Jesus said to the apostles that they would receive the promise of the Father. He said, which you heard from me. And then he said, John baptized with water. But he said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many, day, not many days from now. And then they asked this question. They said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus then says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has appointed in His own authority. He said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And He said, you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now you remember, again, going back to Luke chapter 24, Jesus said to the apostles, they were to tarry in Jerusalem until they were endued from power on a high. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus now tells them, they're going to receive this baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit. They're going to receive power from on high. They would then be able to be witnesses of Him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Literally, around the world, right? So we come to chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the Bible says, they're assembled where? In the city of Jerusalem. Pentecost Day, 50 days after the Passover. They're all with one accord in one place. And it's in this setting, the Holy Spirit falls upon the apostles. There appeared unto them, Divided tongues like as a fire, sitting upon each one of them, that is, upon the apostles. And Luke said in verse 4, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what was it Isaiah said? Isaiah said, pertaining to the church, 
There is a period in which, there's a block of time in which the church will be established, the last days. He said there is a place where the church is going to have its beginning. Where's that? It's in the city of Jerusalem. But then there's a third thing. Isaiah also saw the people that would be a part of the church. That is, this divine institution established in the last days, established in the city of Jerusalem. So you remember, according to Luke in Acts chapter 2, you've got a great host of people assembled together in the city of Jerusalem, right? Peter then preaches the gospel along with the other apostles. The focal point of his message was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He said, you men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by many miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined counsel, foreknowledge of God, he said, you have taken and by lawless or wicked hands have crucified and slain. Peter there preaches the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In this context, he also speaks of the coronation of Christ. That Jesus has been exalted to a throne, that is the throne of David. It is not a physical throne, but rather it is a spiritual throne. And so in verse 36, Peter said, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly, that this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. In other words, God has set His seal of approval on His Son, hasn't He? Declaring Him both Lord and Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, over 300 prophecies. Some of those prophecies penned by Isaiah. So, on Pentecost Day, the text says they're cut or pricked in their heart. And they cried out unto Peter and the rest of the apostles. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, to your children, and to as many as are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God will call. The gospel intended for whom? The intent of the gospel was for the Jews, their descendants, and the Gentiles, right? The gospel, as we preach and teach, is for all, isn't it? You remember, for example, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul talked about how he received revelation from God. He said he took that revelation, wrote it down in a few words. He said, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. He said, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. All right, what then is this mystery that had at one time been concealed, but now revealed? Here it is, verse 6, that the Gentiles might be fellow heirs and of the same body, would you say, Paul, that the Gentiles might be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of Christ by the gospel? Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, 
said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. The design of the gospel is, it's for all people, isn't it? So you think about the people. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said that Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God through the cross. That is, He brought both Jew and Gentile together in the church, didn't He? That's what Isaiah foresees here. All nations shall flow unto it. The beauty of the gospel is, it is open to all. It is an inclusive message, isn't it? It is inclusive in nature in the sense that it's for all. Exclusive in the sense there's only one message. Which leads us to another thought. Isaiah saw the period in which the church would be established. He saw the place where the church would be established. Thirdly, he identifies for us the people that would be a part of the church. And then the precepts that would regulate the church. Listen to him again in Isaiah chapter 2. He said, many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, we shall walk in His paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, we said a moment ago, the beginning point for the church was Jerusalem. The gospel began being preached, where? In Jerusalem. Jesus said before He ascended to heaven, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He said, Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now I want you to listen to Jesus in John chapter 6. Jesus said with regard to to the gospel of Christ or with regard to His Word and the power of the gospel, the power of the message that is to be preached. He said, it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Every man therefore that hath heard and learned of the Father comes unto me. Note if you would the sequence here. Jesus said, every man therefore that hears. Faith comes by what? By hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and learned of the Father, comes unto me. So you have teaching and preaching that is to be a part of the church age. In the book of Acts, when you begin to go forth from Acts chapter 2, what do you read about? Preaching of the gospel, don't you? Now, I said a moment ago, Isaiah foretold the precepts that would regulate the church. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Going back to Acts chapter 2, when they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Here's a question. Did Peter and the apostles, did they legislate something other than what God said, or were they divine spokesmen? You remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, they're in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus asked them in a very forthright way, Who do men say that I the Son of Man am? And they said, Some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jesus then said, But whom do you say that I am? And the Bible tells us that Peter spoke up. He said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Jesus then said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood is not revealed unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. I also say unto you that you're Peter upon this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now look at verse 19. Jesus then said, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys signify authority, don't they? In Matthew 18, 18, those keys were given not to just Peter alone, but to all the apostles. So when they cried out on Pentecost Day and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter and the apostles told them exactly what God wanted them to say, didn't he? They spoke by divine authority. They said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, by His authority. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul said, But if I tarry long, he wrote these things for a purpose. He said that you might know how to behave yourself in the house of God, the church of the living God. So let me ask this question. When we look at the law of Jehovah, that is, the law that began going forth from Jerusalem, can we identify the church that Isaiah foretold of? You look around in the world today, and there are literally hundreds of thousands of different religious organizations and entities. They wear varying names. They practice varying doctrines. I understand how people in the world today can look around in a nation where literally there is a different church on every street corner and ask the question, which one is right or is there one that's right? But we can take the word that began being preached in Jerusalem, the Apostles' Doctrine, and we can identify the church that Isaiah foretold, foretold of centuries ago, can't we? And it begins where? It begins in Acts chapter 2. That's where the church began. Any church that began outside the city of Jerusalem is not the New Testament church. Any church that began, any church that began after Pentecost is not the New Testament church. Any church that began prior to Pentecost would not be the New Testament church. We're talking about the church established in the city of Jerusalem, the time frame about A.D. 30 or 33. The builder of the church was Jesus, wasn't it? Didn't Jesus say, I'll build my church? He bought it with His blood, according to Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. It belongs to Him, according to the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So He bought it. He built it. It belongs to Him. So you're telling me then that I can identify the church that I read about in the Bible. It's exactly right. Well, what about that church? In Acts chapter 2, when those people on Pentecost Day cried out and wanted to know what they needed to do in order to have their sins removed or remitted, Peter told them exactly what to do. Any church or organization that tells people to do something other than what Peter said to do is not the church of the New Testament. It is not the church that Isaiah foretold of centuries earlier, is it? What did he tell them to do? By the authority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Peter said, you need to repent, number one, and you need to be baptized, number two. Well, why? So that your sins might be forgiven. Can I identify 
certain characteristics of the New Testament church? Sure I can. Where did it begin? When did it begin? Who built it? Jesus built it, Matthew 16, 18. It belongs to Him, doesn't it? He bought it with His blood. To those who would dismiss the importance of the church, think about, think about the ramifications of that. Paul said, Take heed to yourselves, to all the flock, over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. To say that the church is unimportant is to dismiss the importance of the blood of Jesus. And He bought it with His blood. Well, how many churches did Jesus build? How many churches are authorized according to the Bible? How many churches did Isaiah envision? Only one. When Jesus began His earthly ministry, He echoed the very same message that John the Baptist preached earlier. They both said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, There are some of you standing here that shall not taste death till you see the kingdom of God come with power. Well, what's the kingdom? The kingdom and the church are one and the same, aren't they? So you think about the Lord Jesus established His church. He bought it with His blood. It was established in Jerusalem in the days of the Roman king. So we have the right place, the right time the right standard of authority, the people represented both Jews and Gentiles. So when I look at what the New Testament teaches, I can identify the church based upon the word of the Lord, can I? The terms of admission. The fact that there's just one body. Not just one body, but one head. Tonight on the news before I came. As I listened to the news, they were talking about in the Catholic Church. They were ordaining a new cardinal. Now listen, please, and I do not say this lightly or arrogantly. You can search the New Testament from cover to cover, but you will never read of a cardinal in the New Testament Church. Not one time. Not only is the Bible absolutely silent with regard to a cardinal, the Bible doesn't say anything about a pope. There's just one head of the church. That head is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, He is the head of the body of the church, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. So you have one head, one body, and one law that regulates that body. What law is that? The law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. So you've got the terms of admission. These are identifying marks of the New Testament church, aren't they? Now think about it. We live in a day and time when people have accepted, they have accepted things that, quite frankly, are not found in the Bible. There is a difference in the apostolic church and the apostate church, isn't there? Any church that does not conform to the teaching of the New Testament is not the apostolic church. That's it. There's just one church. There's just one law that regulates the church. That's the law of Christ. 
And we better know the law of Christ because Jesus said that very law will judge us one day. Paul said, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. And Jesus said, he that rejects me and receives not my word has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken, he said, the same shall judge him in the last day. So when we talk about what Isaiah had to say some seven centuries before the church was established, to understand that we are the beneficiaries of this prophecy. That because we have obeyed the gospel, we belong to the church. We are a part of this exalted mountain, are we not? And then note this feature. We've talked about the period in which the church would be established, the place where it would be established, the people who would be a part of the church, the precepts that would regulate the church, and then Isaiah says... It is to be a peaceful institution. Drop down, look at verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now I understand there are a lot of folks that have taken this verse out of context and they talk about this millennial reign of Christ here on earth. That's not what Isaiah is talking about. What Isaiah is saying is that the kingdom of God, the church of Christ, is a peaceable kingdom, is it not? It is not a carnal kingdom. It is not defended, nor is it advanced by the sword. No, Paul said, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians 6, 17. Do you remember when Jesus was born? The angelic host cried out, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward man. Listen, Isaiah said in chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, speaking of Christ, he said, for He Himself is our peace. He went on to say, He came and preached peace. Those of us who have obeyed the gospel, do we not enjoy the blessings of peace with God? Didn't Paul say in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God, and Paul said we enjoy the peace of God. We're talking about the peaceable kingdom of Christ. They took, according to Isaiah, the figure here taking instruments of war, and turning those instruments of war into machinery that can be benevolent toward other people. In other words, the kingdom of Christ is a benevolent kingdom, isn't it? We help other people. We love other people. The kingdom identified by people who genuinely love one another and help one another. Didn't Jesus say in John chapter 13, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another? Now, is there an aspect in which the church of the kingdom is involved in warfare? Yes. But it's not carnal. It is spiritual warfare, isn't it? So we're a part of a peaceable kingdom. The benefits of being a part of the kingdom of God is, look, number one, we have peace with God, don't we? I mean, we're not, we're not at variance with our Creator anymore. 
And God makes all of this possible where? In the church. You see, redemption is in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul said, Ephesians 1.7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Redemption is in Christ. Reconciliation is in the church of Christ. Listen to Paul, Ephesians 2.16. Reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God through the cross. You mean to tell me that only those who are in the church are reconciled? That's what Paul said. You see why it's so important to be a member of the body of Christ, the church? When you look at what Isaiah said, Isaiah is looking into the distant future, down some seven centuries in time. And he's saying, look, there's coming a day in which God is going to set up this kingdom. It will be like an exalted mountain. And all nations will flow into it. The beauty of this great kingdom is we continue to preach and teach about it and we can be a member of it, can't we? And the beauty of being a member of the kingdom of God is, according to what Paul said, those who are saved are in the church, they're in the kingdom. That means if you're in the church, the kingdom of God, and you're faithful to God, one day you'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's really not that complicated. The question is, Will we accept the truth as revealed in Scripture? Could I ask you tonight, are you a member of the Lord's house? Are you a part of the church that Isaiah talked about, that John the Baptist preached, that Jesus built and bought with His blood? If you're not a part of that church, you need to be a part of it. To understand, there's just one church, one body. And the beauty of that gospel message that we preach and teach is that God will forgive any sin. He'll forgive all sin, won't He? Those who are forgiven, they're added to the church. Who adds them to the church? God does. That's what Luke said, Acts 2, verse 47. Tonight, if you're not a member of the church, why not? Why not obey the gospel? Why not do what they did on Pentecost Day? Become what they were. What were they? Members of the body of Christ. New Testament Christians. You can be that tonight. If you're here tonight, you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, you'd repent of your sins, be baptized into Christ, God will put you in the church. If you're here tonight, maybe you're not faithful for whatever cause. You've left the Lord. The beauty of the gospel is God will take you back. God will forgive you. Listen to John. John said, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us, from all unrighteousness. Tonight, whatever your need might be, please come. Let us pray for you. Let us baptize you into Christ, whatever that need might be, as we stand and sing.